Football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. All right, Jordan, back at it here. This is episode number 54 of the Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helly podcast. Uh, we got our guy Rich Miano who's going to join us uh, later on. He is our resident football guru. He's the executive director of the Hula Bowl. Yes, they are planning on still playing this thing on January 31st at Aloha Stadium in what could possibly be, probably would be if they hold this thing uh, as planned, the final college football game ever played at that facility until they build the new one. Um, but let's warm things up as we like to do here with our little pregame uh, because this week was obviously a, a very historic one. The inauguration was held for Joe Biden becoming the United States 46th president and also marked the swearing in of Kamala Harris as vice president. And that was historically significant because she becomes not only the first female vice president, uh, but also the first black and Southeast Asian VP. Uh, there were also many performances, sidebars to the inauguration. What stood out to you as your favorite part of that thing? It's amazing. We've gotten more episodes now than there have been like presidents of the United States. That might be like the upset of, yeah. of the last 12 months uh, when we look at it. Uh, what stood out to me, how uneventful it was, like just how kind of ho-hum the whole thing was. And I, 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 I really appreciated, you know, President Biden's speech. Um, the young poet, Amanda Gorman, to me, oh, wow. was sort of the highlight of the well, morning for us here in Hawaii, right? Sort of midday for the rest of the country. Um, I thought she was the highlight, but it just, just sort of the, um, the boring normalcy of it all after, you know, for whatever, whatever you want to take over the last, you know, four to five years of just shocking, you know, newsworthy, like, you know, perfect for, for leading headlines or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, this is, and maybe in part because it was partly subdued by the pandemic, right? There weren't people in attendance. It was sort of invite only, right? It wasn't open to the masses for, for all kinds of different reasons. But yeah, just how um, uneventful it was. Not that there weren't significant things that happened throughout, right? The the, the speech and the, the the swearing in and all this kind of stuff. But it was just uh, it was just kind of refreshing, you know? Yeah. From that standpoint. Yeah, I actually watched it and I was somewhat nervous because maybe I've watched too many Christopher Nolan movies or, you know, just based on what happened at the Capitol uh, just a couple of weeks back. I was just thinking like, all right, is everything going to be OK? Like, is there, there's not going to be anything uh, that is going to be a shocking surprise, right? Like this is this is going to run smoothly. And of course it did. Um, and much to the chagrin of some of the QAnon people out there. But uh, it, it was you're right. Refreshingly normal and uneventful. I really did appreciate that. And, and that poem by a 22 year old young poet laureate uh, was, was absolutely wonderful and very fitting and inspiring. Uh, but really the, the thing that stood out the most, the biggest takeaway from this inauguration, I don't even think it's up for debate. It's the Bernie Sanders meme that came out of Bernie sitting there cross-legged holding what looked like a package he was going to take to the U.S. post office with the mittens and with the the overcoat and just how the internet went crazy with that thing uh, posting the image of him photoshopping it like everywhere on top of buildings and on the side of of street corners in New York and like all kinds of stuff and it was just a lot of fun and so uh, Bernie Sanders he stole the show yeah, it was great. That I mean, it's it's still the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> it's still the meme that keeps on going. It has been hilarious where he has just been photoshopped into anything. And I also think it was just about as relatable as anything else, right? In the era of, do we need all these Zoom meetings? In the era of like, see, you know, maybe maybe working from home isn't the worst thing in the world. Just having to sit through something that's maybe a little cold, maybe a little miserable. Maybe it's like, can we just get this moving? Like, I felt like it was a, a vibe that a lot of us could relate to. Like, we, we, all, we, we all had a little bit of us in Bernie yesterday. All right, it's time for game time. <laughs> 
And Max Holloway puts on a blessed performance in a unanimous decision against Calvin Cater in a UFC fight night card broadcast live on ABC, hearkening back to the days of boxing on ABC with Muhammad Ali and the gang. Uh, This one was from Fight Island in Abu Dhabi, and Max, the former featherweight champ, current top contender, the Hawaii guy, was clinical, dominating the number six-ranked featherweight Cater with a UFC record 445 significant strikes. Like, just ridiculous, including 141 in round four alone, which was a single round record. Uh, It was, quite honestly, one of the most eye-popping performances in not just UFC history, but really kind of any combat sport. Uh, One of the judges had to fight 50 to 42 in favor of Max. That means that he gave Max three 10-8 rounds. And there weren't, like, a lot of takedowns and stuff. That's just how much he was dominating in terms of strikes. To Cater's credit, he did last to the end, showed a lot of toughness, but you wonder maybe uh, at what cost. Late in the fight, Max started even looking and talking in the direction of Cater's corner, proclaiming himself to be the best boxer in the UFC. And so he's looking in that direction. Cater's trying to punch him. He's still dodging his punches, even landed one of his own, like no-look style. Conor McGregor has since said Max isn't the best boxer in the UFC, and that hints towards perhaps a possible long-awaited rematch between those two. Dana White, meanwhile, says Max deserves yet another crack at featherweight champ Alexander Volkanovsky, whom Max has lost to twice. But what did you think of Max's performance, and what would you like to see next here for the YNI boy? It was incredible. I mean, it looked like a different Max, right? He was was rejuvenated. Uh, He looked like he was out to prove something whether it was that he is the best boxer in the UFC or that he is a different fighter than he was the last two times he stepped into the octagon and taking on Volkanovsky, right? I mean, he, he dismantled a guy that many had thought had the wherewithal to, to challenge for a title shot here in the next you know year or so. Um, the way that he was kind of working his way through the division, if he could knock off, knock off a Max Holloway, which, which a lot of people thought he had the, the skill set to do so. And Max just went out there and immediately, right, got after it. His, his energy level, his aggression was just something to behold. And the fact that he can do that for 25 minutes, right, there are not a lot of guys that can do that um, for the full five rounds like we have seen Max do, and, and even more so to this level. And then, and then sort of when he got to, he was feeling himself in those later rounds, and he starts talking, and he starts doing the Muhammad Ali, and he starts looking away and landing a jab and then looking away and dodging punches. Like, it was just, it was almost out of body, like for Max, and I think for a lot of people watching at home, because there are some proven facts, I think. And I don't have hard data for this, but the collective self-esteem of the Hawaiian Islands goes up exponentially when Max wins. Like, there's no doubt, right? Like, people are happier. People have a little bigger pep in their step when Max wins a fight. Uh, There is no adrenaline rush, quite like watching, like, one of the, the Hawaii guys, right, step in. And, and not just a fight, but like a title fight or a big-time main event, whether it was BJ before, whether it's Max now, Eli Malay when she was fighting for some of her titles, I think, in Bellator. Like, there's nothing like that. Like, the collective psyche of Hawaii um, sort of just gets latched onto this poor guy, right, Max, who's just, who's just out there representing. Um, and it was just – it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing to see him put on that performance in the way he did – the confidence he was coming out of it, saying he's, you know, he's hanging out for a week. It looks like the, the Poirier-McGregor fight's going to happen, right? It looks like both guys are going to be there on Saturday, even though Max is still, I think, waiting out just to see if anything happens. He's ready to step in. The guy is nuts. We love it. He is so well-prepared, so smart in how he goes about things. And so going forward, I don't know. Like, the Volkanovsky trilogy makes sense, right? But I don't even know if that's what Max wants. I don't even know if, if that's what I would want as a fan, right? Because at this point, he's won the belt. Right, we all know how the second fight played out. He was kind of calling out Volkanovski in the post-fight press conference, talking about he wants a different fight, doesn't want a tougher fight because he knows where the toughest fight is, and that's with me, Max Holloway. But I don't know. Like, I think at this point, like the high-profile matchups are almost where Max is at. Right, like give him McGregor something, something like that. Right, if it if it works out, if it's in the cards, you know, he he's talked about Khabib. Right, he's he's talk, he wants to fight the biggest names out there. And I don't know if it's a great decision because some of those dudes are bad dudes, right? <laughs> a boxing match against Calvin Cater is a lot different than trying to step in with Khabib, who can grapple with the, the greatest Olympians out there, right? Like, it's a much different fight. But at this point in Max's career, I think he's at the point where it's like, 
He just kind of wants to challenge himself against these big-time names because it, he's won the belt. He's been to the mountaintop. Does he want to fight Volkanovski a third time in, like, less than 18 months? I don't know. I don't know if he really wants that. I think he wants to go out and go for the biggest pay-per-views, the biggest the biggest lime, uh, you know, spotlights and all the things like that. I, and I'm kind of on board with it. Like, go for it. I totally agree with that. I, I think – if you're a great fighter, if, if you're one of those sort of rare elite, dare I say, legendary fighters, you get to a point in your career where it becomes more about the legacy fight and not as much about, all right, I'm going to climb through the rankings and get back into that top contendership and then I'm going to fight my way for the belt. Not when you've been there, done that. And so I fully agree with you that Max Holloway, I think, uh, especially by virtue of this performance, right, that was transcendent in many ways. I think he now positions himself for one of those short lists of, all right, who do we match together for a UFC legacy fight? And there is probably no bigger payday awaiting than if he were granted the opportunity to have that long awaited rematch with Conor McGregor. Remember that one? You had Conor McGregor winning by unanimous decision, but you had Max Holloway who injured his knee during the fight and uh, you know was able to tough it out. But that was a completely different Max Holloway than what he is now. Obviously a different Conor McGregor perhaps too than what he is now. Uh, but I would love to see that fight. I mean, is that necessarily the one that Dana White is eyeing? He probably wants to somehow... Uh, convince Khabib to come out of retirement and, and fight Conor McGregor again because that would be the uber payday. Uh, but I agree that Max Holloway, I think, is now in that group, right? He is in the pipeline, so to speak, of being one of those legacy fight chips that Dana White and the rest of the matchmakers and brass within the UFC can utilize uh, to try to build up some of these cards. I think what was great about that fight from the Hawaii perspective, and you're absolutely right, it, it does lift the spirits of everybody. I think Robert Kikawa once said, like, it makes the poke taste a little more fresh. You know, and it's like, that's, that's kind of true. Uh, because especially for a guy that lost three of his last four fights, and I think there was some concern, even if a lot of people didn't agree with the final result in that second fight against Volkanovsky where he lost by a split decision, you know, I think there was some concern as to, all right, you know, Max is still only 29 years old, but have we seen the best of him already, right? He's fought at a pretty high clip. You know, every fighter kind of hits that point where it starts to be more downhill. You're closer to the end than you are to the beginning, you know, that kind of thing. And I think there were some who speculated that maybe we had seen the best of Max. And what does Max Holloway do? He tells all of them to go bleep themselves. And he puts on maybe the most dominant strike fest uh, that we've ever seen, not just in the UFC, but maybe all of mixed martial arts. Uh, he was absolutely phenomenal. And I think it was because that performance was so immensely impressive that it just goes to further his position as a guy due for one of those legacy fights. He's still here. Yeah. He's still very much here and, and very much a viable, viable candidate to, to fight for a title again or just go ahead and, and you know, one of those BMF-type fights that the UFC <laughs> likes to promote these days. Yeah, he's just hanging out in Abu Dhabi, skateboarding around and uh, <laughs> photobombing some of Conor McGregor's uh, PR interviews. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, good for Max. That was awesome to see. All right, we move over to things that are a little bit more on the struggle side here. The UH basketball program, both the men and the women experiencing some bumps in the road here in this very strange and peculiar season where they have seen canceled games already. They have played in limited fashion, certainly by comparison to some of their opponents. But the men dropped a pair of home games versus Bakersfield last week, while the Wahine lost to Bakersfield twice on the road. Rainbow Warriors weren't able to consistently match the energy and intensity of the Roadrunners. They turned out to be a pretty good team, very deep, very athletic, full court pressure the entire time, uh, very much the signature of head coach Rod Barnes, who used to coach at Ole Miss in the SEC, former SEC coach of the year. Uh, you did have Justin Webster, who was a bright spot for Hawaii that weekend, had a career-high 23 on night two, albeit in a loss. Meanwhile, with starting point guard Nene Calhoun out for the season with a knee injury, the Wahine are averaging 20 turnovers per game. They have even fewer bodies to work with after freshman rotation player Tiani McDaniel decided to opt out. Uh, there are reports that 6'4 junior transfer Chanel Noah also suffered a serious injury. So with that said, on both fronts here, Jordan, how concerned are you about the status of hoops in Manoa right now? Yeah, I Fairly concerned, right? I mean, these are two programs that have been in the NCAA tournament, you know, under both head coaches that are currently there that have played deep into the conference tournaments, particularly on the Wahine side in recent years. 
Um, I, I think, you know, a little more concerned maybe about the, the Rainbow Wahine just based on, you know, limited results, right? They've only played four games. And I think that's a point that needs to be made just with both programs, right? The lack of non-conference games, I think, is really shown through. It's really shown through in the, the start of the conference season. And, but for, for the Wahine, right, the, the fact that they go ahead and, and offensively have just really struggled, really, really struggled. You look at the first halves of those two losses at Bakersfield, right? 18 points in the Friday game in the first half, and then 14, just 14 points in the first 20 minutes of that second game loss to Cal State Bakersfield uh, on Saturday. And five of the eight quarters that they've played in the two conference games and the two Big West games, 11 points or less. Like, that's, that's not good. That's not good at all. They haven't shot it well from three. They haven't shot well from the field overall. You know, Amy Atwell started to get it going a little bit in that second game, and she's maybe their most reliable, consistent shooter coming back this season. This is also a team that lost to HPU, right, who's one of the best maybe five teams in Division Two, if not the best team in Division Two. But still, right, it's a Pac West opponent. You know, they were, they were down at half, I believe it was. It was basically tied, but I think they were down a point or two at half to UH Hilo before they got it together in the second half. Another Pac West opponent. So it's tough there. And then on the men's side, you know, that was about as ugly a back-to-back performances. We've seen them play in a long time, like a long time. And again, it's a weird year, but that was, it was pretty hard to watch <laughs> the two Bakersfield games in part because the offense struggled, right? They, they, they got out rebounded badly in the second game. Uh, so you, you talk about some of the, there's just the hustle aspects, the want to aspects, uh, but also coming off the fact that they split on the road at Riverside and probably should have won both games at Riverside, a Riverside team that's won at University of Washington in Seattle that took uh, USC to overtime just after those games and, and a Riverside team that, that pounded Cal Poly in two games, including winning one by like 30 points this past week. It's like, like they looked to be a pretty good team and Hawaii went on the road and probably should have taken two from them. You know, they've had four different guys score 20 plus points in their four games so far at different points, right? Um, they seem to have pieces, right? I really like Kazan Jardine, James G. Marie down inside. Uh, Webster has gone for 20 plus. Junior Madut has gone for 20 plus in a different game. And so we've, we've at least seen some of the positives from the men, even though they're coming off two just awful tasting performances. <laughs> they haven't shot well from the free throw line either and the three point line. So that's maybe a cause for concern if they, if they really can't stretch the floor nor get to the basket and maybe do some damage at the free throw line. But if we've at least seen some flashes from them on the Wahine side, I don't think we've really seen them put it together yet. And I think that's why I'm a little more concerned about Laura Beeman's squad. The Wahine are sort of playing into exactly what Laura Beeman was concerned about with this disjointed season, right? Uh, she ha- was quoted in and even featured to a degree in a Sports Illustrated uh, online article about you know whether or not it was a good idea for all of us to be playing college basketball during a pandemic with the required travel and with some of the dangers that that introduces all of these players and and extended family members to. Um, And so those were some of her questions, but I think also by virtue of the disjointed nature of the season amid the pandemic, she was concerned about injury, right? If, If we're not getting into a rhythm of playing and getting into game conditioning and game shape, you know, that's something that can take a toll. And maybe that's something that is, is potentially even more prevalent in the women's game. Uh, and you are seeing that play out with a, a couple of pretty significant injuries. And so, uh, you know, she is having to play players who are maybe newcomers to the program, not as familiar with the system, players that require a little bit more in terms of their own development. Uh, she's having to play them much greater minutes uh, and as much heavier roles in her patchwork quilt rotation than what she was planning. And, and, and you know, that's not ideal. You're going to have to take your lumps uh, and, and hopefully, you know, find ways to turn the corner here moving forward. They play a Cal State Fullerton team this weekend at home for a couple of games, Friday and Saturday. They've been struggling under Jeff Harada, former HPU uh, head coach. They have some reason to maybe feel like, all right, this is a weekend opportunity for us to compete and maybe we can find something. Uh, I think she's been impressed by Kelsey Imai, uh, the freshman uh, local product who has taken on the reins of the point guard responsibility. She has shown some signs of leadership. She has not shied away from having to take those reins. And so I think those are all things that maybe in the long run can actually have positive effects, but you're going to have to withstand uh, the lumps that you're going to be taking here in the present form. As for the men, yeah, I think the concern was, you're right, they have pieces. It just didn't seem as though there was a lot of on-court inspiration 
That's the one thing they always say, that travels, right? If you have the energy, if you have defensive intensity, it doesn't matter where you play, it doesn't matter what time you play, that's something that you can control. You can't always control if the, bas- if, if the ball goes in the basket, right? Night after night, you can't necessarily control that, but you can control your own energy and intensity that you bring. And on that particular weekend, it didn't seem that Hawaii was playing, at least team-wide, consistently inspired basketball and and so that's a concern because that's something that's a little more intangible a little bit uh, more nebulous uh, and it's going to be incumbent on the coaching staff to see if they can somehow uh, right that ship I think that's a lot more difficult than just trying to change up some X's and O's all right we switch up to the NFL and we're going to be talking some football with our resident football guru Rich Miano in a little bit uh, but specifically a big story as Philip Rivers announced he was retiring here this week longtime Chargers quarterback who played his last season for the Colts called it a career at the age of 39 after 17 seasons in the league eight-time pro bowler never made it to a Super Bowl but is fifth all-time in both passing and touchdowns his durability is is something that is worthy of recognition right playing through injuries starting 252 straight games that's amazing all the while never one to shy away from talking some trash is rivers a hall of famer in your opinion jordan and or where does he rank perhaps on the list of the greatest qbs never to win a ring yeah he to me he's a hall of famer Uh, you you went through some of the numbers right top five all-time in touchdowns and yards uh second that streak is incredible including the fact that you think about right the the AFC title game he started, what was it, 2007 or something like that, where he's playing through a torn ACL six days after he had surgery. Um, to Just to Favre, you know, you think of guys like Dan Marino and Jim Kelly and Warren Moon, Dan Fouts' friend, Tarkington, like all these guys, right? And some of them did make a Super Bowl, if not multiple Super Bowls, right, in the case of Jim Kelly. But guys that all are in the Hall of Fame, guys that are all there when you think of best to ever do it, never to win a Super Bowl. And if he had won one Super Bowl, he'd be a slam dunk, like a slam dunk. And and you look at that draft class, right, with he and Eli Manning and Ben Roethlisberger. And to me, he's better than Eli, right? And Eli's in the conversation with worse numbers because he's got two Super Bowl wins, right? Two Super Bowl wins against the Patriots, which I think counts a little bit more in a lot of people's minds. Uh, you could argue he's better than Ben Roethlisberger, right? If Ben Roethlisberger doesn't have the two Super Bowls, we're probably having a very similar conversation with him. And he has played just like Philip Rivers has, has over the course of his career. Some really good offenses, right? I mean, you think about those 2000s offenses with Antonio Gates and, and Ladanian Tomlinson and, and some of those groups that he had. But he, to me, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer. Like, the numbers prove it. The eye test proves it. There were stretches there in the early 2000s where he, like, he was the best guy just throwing the football around and putting up numbers. And, and you can talk about inflated numbers in this era and things of that nature. But there's top five in touchdowns and yards and played all those years and yeah, he doesn't have the team success that, that other guys do, but I think we, we overdo that. We really do when it comes to a lot of these conversations. Yeah, you know, you wonder if maybe there should be uh, the application of some kind of Hall of Fame standard. I know that it's weird because the game evolves, uh, but you know, like in golf, if you reach a certain level of tournament wins or, you know, you collect a certain number of, of career accolades, you, you sort of automatically qualify for the Hall of Fame. And I wonder if that's something that should be applied uh, in football. If you get in the top five in career touchdowns <laughs> and, and career yards, that's probably something that should just punch your ticket. And, and he did not make a Super Bowl, but if you recall the one AFC championship game that he did play in, they lost, but he also, as it turned out, played on a torn ACL. So, I mean, we yep. should probably apply some qualification and nuance to even that description uh, in, in addition to everything else that Philip Rivers has done. I, I kind of agree, but you know me. I'm one of those, I, I would open the door to all kinds of Hall of Famers. I want people who either walk through Canton or Cooperstown or, or wherever it may be. You know, when they walk through, they're supposed to be exposed to the history of the game. And I do think that it's going to be pretty difficult to describe the, the history of football in its entirety if you don't include Philip Rivers. Um, and by the way, a guy who uh, was cultivated a little bit by Norm Chow over at NC State. So uh, another, another connection that we kind of have uh, indirectly to Philip Rivers. I, I say put him in the hole. All right, it's time now for our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and that is our conversation with Rich Miano. He is 
a man who does a lot of different things, right? Color analyst for UH football. Uh, he is a former coach at UH, played 11 years in the NFL, but he is also the executive director of the Hula Bowl. And we have him on because the Hula Bowl may be the last college football game played at the present Aloha Stadium facility. It is scheduled to be held January 31st. We're going to get into it with Rich right now. You are a man of, of many uh, roles and, and many jobs, Rich Miano. So um, how difficult has this particular role in being the executive director of the Hula Bowl this time around amid the pandemic? How difficult has it been? Well, I, I thought last year, you know, rebooting this game after not having been played for eight years, you know, the logistics of uh, bringing in a, over 100 college football players, you know, it's uh, we have 30 coaching staff. There's probably at least uh, 100 employees and, and all kinds of moving parts. And I thought that was going to be very challenging. This with COVID and uh, this pandemic and uh, the testing protocols and the safety of the players and the coaches and the staff and having no fans at Aloha Stadium and, you know, what went, what went down with Aloha Stadium in terms of securing that facility uh, for this football game, maybe the last college or any football game played in that stadium. I mean, all of those things have been tremendous speed bumps, tremendous adversity, and uh, I'm glad that my team has been resilient, and I think that every day you wake up and you take the positive news and uh, you just work, work around the obstacles. All right, so let's, let's, let's start there because, um, you know, every time I mention the Hula Bowl to anybody, one of the reactions, unfortunately, because, you know, it's just a world of, of skepticism now amid the pandemic is, oh, they're actually going to play that game? Uh, and so you talked about some of the obstacles and some of the adversity. And so as we are now getting closer, we're a little more than a week away. Uh, how confident are you that things will go according to plan? Well, you know, we've put in so many protocols in terms of the vault testing system, which I think is a great uh, way to test before you travel, the Hawaii Safe Travel Plans, Synexis, a, a company that uh, developed and designed these machines that we use for the Tampa Bay uh, Rays, as well as the, the Dodgers in the World Series. We'll have them in our locker rooms. We'll have them in our meeting rooms. Uh, we have these special nano masks that all the players will be wearing, all the social distance, distancing things, you know, trying to be outside whenever possible. I mean, there's been just so many things that we've gone through that have been very expensive, very time consuming, uh, getting state approval from the Department of Health, getting uh, city approval, uh, the County of Honolulu and Mayor Rick Belangiardi. Uh, this has uh, been such a process. You know, it started with Hawaii Tourism Authority and John DeFries, who's been wonderful. This has been uh, time consuming, mind boggling, uh, administrative, uh, but at the same time, we're getting close, and we have a phenomenal coaching staff. We've stepped up. We have a phenomenal roster. It's stepped up probably tenfold. Uh, we have uh, great swag. We have great partnerships. We have great sponsorship. But it is every day is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I can I can only imagine. Uh, what's the demand been like from from a player standpoint of of guys looking to come and play? this year as opposed to last year. I mean, some of the other all-star games, showcase games have been wiped out. Uh, there's no combine this year, at least an in-person NFL combine. So guys are looking for any opportunity to maybe showcase their stuff for scouts. What, what, what's the demand been like, Rich? The demand's been great, and uh, but it's still, uh, you have to circumvent the fact that a lot of these players are being wooed, are, are uh, being uh coaxed into going back to playing their sixth or seventh possible year of college football to increase their draft status. The biggest challenge from a positional player, because again, the talent level amongst the offensive and defensive line and the receivers and all of the skilled positions, DBs and linebackers and tight ends has been great. How do you find that quarterback who makes this game better when you figure that Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, a lot of these guys are either juniors coming out early not even going to the senior bowl because they don't have to. Then the senior bowl scoops up maybe the next six of the best quarterbacks in the country. But we do have some great quarterbacks coming in. We have six quarterbacks that are better than any one of the quarterbacks we had in last year's games. I would imagine uh, two or three or four of these guys will be late round draft picks. Then the others will be free agents. They'll all be playing eventually on Sunday. Uh, they'll be on somebody's practice squad or somebody's rosters next year. So we do. I have a player personnel guy who's done a phenomenal job in the interest in this game 
has magnified. And we are getting probably the 111th best player in the country to the 225th best player in the country. So the talent has went uh, exponentially better. Well, that's a tease and a half, right? Can you give us some names? Is, is it too early in the process to start disclosing some of this stuff? I mean, what, what else can you give us, Rich? You know, I don't have my roster in front of me, but I can refer back to some of my notes as we go on in the broadcast. But I, I will give you names in the coaching thing that I'm way more directly involved. Okay. Head coach Rex Ryan versus head coach Mike Singletary, the Hall of Famer. Offensive coordinator uh, Jim Zorn versus – Mark Sanchez, uh, quarterback coach G.J. Kinney from the University of Hawaii and potentially defensive back coach Abraham Elamimium from, the, uh, from, from uh, the University of Hawaii as well. And then when you throw in Jordan Matthews, the former receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, is one of the pro players. Ronnie Jones, a defensive coordinator who's had many years in the National Football League. And then, you know, we talk about our local great coaching staff that will supplement that. So there's 30 coaches, 15 on each side. We have a tremendously talented staff that mixes NFL college, NFL player experience for these young guys to get educated. And as you know, Jordan, and as Kanoa knows as well, these guys go to meetings with tablets. They take notes. We have the University of Hawaii video staff that's going to film every single practice paid for by the National Football Scouting Association. They'll download that. They'll be in meetings just like they are in college in the NFL. They'll be watching the film. Uh, they'll be practicing. They'll be having fun. This is not something where they come and we play music and they dance and uh, it's a Pro Bowl-like atmosphere. This is a week-long job interview, including Wonderlick tests, height and weights, you know, all the scrutiny of the NFL scouts. And I think we'll have between 50 and 100 NFL scouts in attendance. All right. Well, I got you a little bit here, uh, Rich. I got, I got your back here. I have a couple of the names. This is at least uh, as updated as possible with the accepted invitation. So you have Peyton Ramsey of Northwestern is one of the yes. names in the quarterback position. Brady White from Memphis, Zach Smith from Tulsa, David Moore from Central Michigan. These are just some of the quarterbacks. And, you know, there is obviously a litany of other uh, players at other positions of significance that are part of this game. And, and so that leads us to sort of the, the conversation about what this game represents. And you touched a little bit on it with Jordan just now. But, uh, and, and the fact that you're still on the precipice of playing this thing, I think uh, it is – uh, certainly something that ties into the fact that this isn't a game that is just for show. It's, it's, a, it's not necessarily a game that is, you know, just a celebration of, of the greatest talents in college football like the Hula Bowl once was, where there isn't that inherent, you know, necessity for the players to try their last-ditch efforts to make it into the league or catch the eyes of various scouts or coaches. Um, those games, the ones with the more prominent names, under these pandemic circumstances I would imagine are less likely to happen because they're less necessary from the standpoint of the players who already have established reputations for themselves these players are still fighting to get their shot and so to me that becomes part of the motivation as to why even amid these very difficult circumstances there's a really good chance that this game takes place because it serves a different purpose yeah, there's no question. And, and we do uh, no longer want to be Avis, uh, the number two uh, company in the, in the car rental business. <laughs> we want to be Hertz. And that's, you know, that's an old school analogy. But by being uh, the second uh, most popular bowl game for these players, I, I think you're exactly right when you talk about a guy who maybe is projected to go between the fourth and the sixth round. And these guys all have projections. They all have agents. They're all, all trying to move up. And the amount of money moving up, the ability to make a team moving up, the ability to, you know, uh, play on Sundays is really in this pandemic year in the, in, in the situation, as you mentioned, that we are in as the Hula Bowl, the second biggest all-star college all-star game in America. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right you know when drew Brees was in maui and he was 5 11 and 7 eighths he kept adjusting his head stepping back away from the height and weight chart because it was important to be six feet because he could improve his draft status so everything from the wonderlick to the height and weight to the arm to the hand measurement and then on the field in the meetings how they approach covid protocols you know will determine if they're professional in their approach to this game so this is amazing when you walk through the hotel lobby and you see the individual NFL scouts from 32 teams and they look on these players' faces because it's a 
week-long job interview where everything is measured. You don't have to worry about these guys at head check at 12 o'clock and going down the streets and causing trouble, whatever else. This is a job interview. This is something that can exponentially increase their wealth or, or their status to become a National Football League player. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not as though these, these guys haven't already built their names to a certain level, but they're not exactly all the, the cream of the crop. Like this, this guy is a lottery type of, you know, top 10 type of pick. And so there is more for them to attain by going through an experience like this. So I think that that is part of why this, this iteration of the Hula Bowl so far through the first couple of years has, has looked to serve these guys well, uh, you mentioned the other factor, I think, and, and another uh, possible important subplot to this game, and is the fact that it's being played at Aloha Stadium. And, and this is big news. This is no surprise to anybody that Aloha Stadium has uh, ceased uh, and halted uh, any future event planning and scheduling uh, out of cost and safety concerns. Uh, and so the Hula Bowl was already in talks. You guys had already you know, done this contract. And so this could be uh, what will take the place of any other event. This could be the much desired official send off, if you will, for Aloha Stadium. How important a part of the game is that to you? A guy who played in that stadium, a guy who is broadcast in that stadium, a guy who is coached in that stadium. And for this game to maybe be the symbolic Aloha to that. Yeah, um, you know, it's one of those deals where it well, could be the answer to a trivia question. Where, <laughs> what was the last game played at a law stadium? I think it also has the nostalgia. I think it all, there are also benefits in terms of branding uh, in this uh, iconic stadium. And who knows when Aloha Stadium will, will be rebuilt, whether they'll have a, some type of corporate name on that. Uh, but it is, uh, it's sad. And if you really start reminiscing about it and you start thinking about Personally, the 40 years that I've been there as a player in college, a player in high school when Kaiser won the state championship, a player in college, uh, the largest attendance in the University of Hawaii history, a coach throughout the Sugar Bowl years, uh, obviously the Pro Bowls, every other event from concerts to uh, international soccer and, and all the other things that have taken place at a law stadium. It holds a very special place in my heart. And, and I know hundreds of thousands, if not other, you know, people in the state of Hawaii. And I still feel iconicness when I walk in this, when I look at the fact that it's hosted all these Pro Bowls, when it hosted all these, you know, Michael Jackson and U2 and Bruno Mars and, you know, the University of Hawaii football and high school football in front of 31,000 people when I first moved to Hawaii in 1979, you know, Prepo. That, that to me, that was bigger than tech. Texas was bigger than Ohio in high school football. It still has that uh, great high school atmosphere. It's going to be sad. You know, when the wrecking balls come in and they actually start smashing that stadium down, and then we as the consumer, we as the fans, we as the tax-paying uh, citizens of the state of Hawaii think, is it going to be $350 million? Is it going to be built in three years? Is it going to have that same aura that Aloha Stadium had? It's going to be uh, – you know, I, I'm hoping it's not the real, but I, and I'm hoping it's an entertainment district that everybody in this state can take advantage of. When you fly over it, you know, you're going to go like, we have to attend this Aloha Stadium entertainment complex to go shopping, to be entertained, you know, visitors being there, uh, housing there, everything else that East meets West, H1, H2, H3, the real comes to there. And we have multiple events. And of course, Rich, I think the, the follow-up to that, right, for, for the University of Hawaii, they recently announced their plans to go ahead and, and play home games on campus there at the, the Ching Complex there uh, at the University of Hawaii. What did you make of that decision? And then also the fact that, you know, the Hula Bowl also looking for a temporary home. Is that a possibility? What do you foresee as, as the future for, for the Hula Bowl? Yeah, and I talked to Dave Matlin yesterday, you know, if we had to go to the Ninth Island and, you know, we would rent a Legion Stadium and it's a $1.9 billion stadium and our hotel cost would be less, our airfare, you know, potential sponsors. But that's not what we want to do. We want the Polynesian Bowl. We want the Hula Bowl. We want high school football. We want women's soccer. I think if they do that stadium correctly and whether it's in phases and it gets to, say, 5,000 or 7,500 next year, but they are putting a new field turf in, they're putting a new scoreboarding, they're upgrading their speaker systems, the press box, and it's capable of holding CBS Sports. 
Sports and a national uh, television broadcast. I think that would be a revenue producing thing because of parking, because of concessions, because you own it. And I think uh, it could host a, a multitude of events that Aloha Stadium is too large for. So I think being in town, doing this correctly, I think that is the way to go for a multitude of events, students walking down from the dormitories, you know, people parking in that parking structure, overlooking this facility, tailgating, uh, just, I, I'm excited about the opportunity to hold a hula bowl, a Polynesian bowl, high school football there as soon as next year. Yeah, I think it's got a sort of field of dreams sort of potential to it uh, when, when they made that announcement, I think for a lot of people there. Um, you know, for, for this for this hula bowl and for the fact that these guys won't be able to necessarily go out and do a lot of the other activities, right, that we see. And, and do, is that still part of the mixture? I mean, a lot of these guys last year, right, whether it's the Polynesian Cultural Center visits, whether it's the beach or whatever, um, you know, is how much of that is still part of it? You've already mentioned these guys have taken it very seriously. This is a business trip for, for many of them as they look to further their careers. Um, but also the fact that, you know, Hawaii is a draw because it's Hawaii. Yeah, uh, and let me segue into this because I'm not sure we're going to, uh, you know, this Hula Bowl, um, this Hula Bowl Hall of Fame, by the way, is Drew Brees, Steve Spurrier, Tim Brown, Jesse Sapolo, and a guy named Pat O'Farrell. So that's another exciting thing we have for the broadcast. Neil Everett's going to do the voiceovers, and it's going to be uh, very, very well done, of course, and uh, these uh, such great athletes are well-deserved. But segueing into – the culture, the ability for these players, although they're only here for seven days, to not go to the Polynesian Cultural Center, even though that is opening and they'll be at 10% occupancy. We're taking so many COVID restrictions in terms of, uh, you know, grabbing go meals and such. That set, to that extent, we have a whole bunch of cultural video footage that they will be seeing. We have a whole bunch of B-roll for how beautiful this state is. We will have the ha'a you know, performed and practiced in that cultural aspect. We have cultural practitioners that will be giving, you know, small messages to these young players of the importance of Hawaii, the beauty of Hawaii, the culture of Hawaii. So we're not going to go without that. It's just going to be done more in a virtual aspect. But I think that these players will all leave here going like this was not Mobile, Alabama. This is not Pasadena, California. This is not Orlando, Florida. This is Hawaii, and it's a special place with special people, with a special culture. What is the goal this time around? Um, because you have, obviously, the, the factor of fans being at the game. That's, that's not going to be a part of the equation uh, this time around because of, of the pandemic and the situation in Aloha Stadium. Um, you have the television broadcast and radio broadcast aspect of this. Uh, the player's experience. What is sort of the goal on, on trying to find that, that sweet spot of balance in terms of the experience for the players, but also trying to garner further exposure for the game itself? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think, you know, each and every one of these young people that is involved in this game, every local catch coach as well as the mainland coach, the staff members, whatever else, you know, you obviously want to see an exciting football game that's played clean, that has a high level of skill. And then it becomes a great broadcast with yourself and Brian Baldinger and Ian Schering and Kainoa Carlson and, and, and you guys' team. You want to make sure that 30-minute pregame show uh, really captures and captivates the audience in terms of this Hula Bowl Hawaii experience. There are so many things that would make this an ultimate success, but I, I think if, if you wanted to uh, be myopic about it, it's each and every one of these players having the opportunity to increase their status and their livelihood and live out their dreams. All right. Well, that's, uh, I, I think that's, that's awesome. And we, we, we wish you the very best in, in getting this thing uh, to where you're able to to play this thing out as planned uh, and and have that experience that, that you're discussing because I, I think it's such a great opportunity on a number of levels that we're talking about for the players' involvement, uh, but also as a as a, an official goodbye to Aloha Stadium potentially and and all of that stuff. 
but you are a resident football guru, right? You are, even though the Bobby Curran show has kind of uh, stolen you a little bit, right? You, you were the resident football guru of Let's Talk Sports on ESPN Maui before those guys plugged you in every Monday. And so we, via this podcast, still refer to you as that. We still claim you as our guy. And so when it comes to any football-related questions, you're the guy we want to turn to. And so with that in mind... Um, I wanted to get, because we haven't spoken to you since the conclusion of the University of Hawaii football season, I just kind of wanted to get your reaction overall now that there's been some time to further digest that and, and kind of consider, you know, the way it went. It was a very odd season, but it included this surprise bowl invitation, uh, the New Mexico Bowl, which was played in Texas, and then Hawaii was able to win that. Thing against the University of Houston and so it was a by all accounts a successful albeit very weird season how would you describe and sum up year one in the Todd Graham era well first I want to let you guys know since you talked about my start in Maui and then how <laughs> I've expanded exponentially to ESPN Honolulu there actually is a show called X's and Ohana's that's being presented to the largest reality TV people in Los Angeles. And if that goes, I may not even remember you guys' name anymore <laughs> as soon as oh, that thing happens. Now, to sum up the University of Hawaii football <laughs> season, you know, to encapsulate it, to talk about, you know, an eight-game season and then a bowl game, I was, you know, I'm a firm believer that this team was extremely talented, uh, you know, and nobody knew how good Calvin Turner was prior to the season. We didn't know about Day-Day Hunter. We didn't know about some other guys that flashed on defense. Um, but we knew uh, they had potentially to be a Mountain West championship team or contender. I, after looking at this season and really watching this and analyzing this, I still think it was a six and two, seven and one team that underperformed in the regular season against Wyoming, uh, against uh, a couple of the teams down the stretch. We saw glimpses of the offense, the potential of this offense, and we saw greatness in Calvin Turner and the potential of Chevin Cadero to be a great quarterback for many years to come, and some of those other receivers, and you know the offensive line played better towards the end of it. But how they ended in Houston how they finished up the season on game number eight, how they are now going into the off season. You know, I was somewhere around, you know, if you, if you were grading on an A to F, I was kind of a C plus B minus guy, but I, I, I give it a solid B now because of the bowl game, because of how they ended the season. Be, the, and the potential is vast. It, it, it's one of those things where there's a foundation that Nick Rolovich built at this program that should last for the next two to three years because I think a lot of foundations, including the National Football League, are built upon great quarterback play. And when you have Chevin Cordero for three, potentially three more years, I, I think that is the way to start. I think there'll be, you know, all these players coming back that get that extra year eligibility. If you have a great quarterback, you have Calvin Turner back, you have Darius Muasau on defense, you have Corey Bethley who played well, you know, you've got guys like Blessman Ta'ala, whatever else. And I think this coaching staff will have a lot uh, more uh, time with these young men to get them in the kind of discipline, the kind of uh, cardiovascular as well as strength and condition in this offseason, as well as to continue to implement these systems because this was a new coaching staff. And when you look at all that, I think the potential to be even better is there for next year. You mentioned the systems. Um before we maybe move off from UH or, or I'm, I'm not sure what Jordan wants to follow up with, but I just wanted to follow up with uh, the question of how satisfied from your vantage point you were with the implementation of those systems, with the schemes that were run um, where, you know, you mentioned Darius Muasau and he was kind of a rover all over the field. There was a lot of feigned blitz looks, uh, even offensively was a little bit of a tweak to what we saw obviously under the, previous regime what was your take on the systems that were implemented well so let's go special teams and get that out of the way quickly I thought uh, Adam Stack did a phenomenal job uh, punting I thought you know from a kicking standpoint they were kind of 50-50 on that could be much improved from a coverage standpoint I thought they were okay they returned that kickoff for a touchdown which was big so you know at the end of the day they were pretty average to above average special teams defensively I thought 
the amount of gap cancellation, the amount of run blitzing, the amount of uh, people that they were sending to, to create pressure early. There were some gaping holes. There were some uh, missed assignments. There were some explosive plays. But I think all in all, and by the way, they, they blitzed the cornerback more than probably any college football team I've seen in, in America. Um, so they, they do – I like the fact that they come after you. I like the fact that they uh, want to hold the chalk last, so to speak. But, um, you know, and then Darius Musa, what a season. You know, we mentioned some of the other players that played well. Um, overall, I thought they – they grew as a defense. Overall, I thought they were better schematically um, with their X's and O's, and, 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 and they played better uh, from a technique standpoint. So they, they really improved defensively, and I didn't think that was the best talented team in the Mountain West Conference, but I, but I love watching them play defensively. It was offense that I struggled with the continuity. Uh, uh, some of the, you know, especially the inability in the first quarters to, to start fast, um, the ability to really be consistent in the passing game. And, and I think, they, again, they have great receivers. They have a, you know experienced offensive line, and they have a phenomenal quarterback. You know, and he wasn't as accurate, Chevron, as I saw him maybe even the year before. So did he regress a little bit from an accuracy standpoint, understanding a new scheme? Maybe so, but the potential is vast, and his ability – to escape pressure. I think it was the San Diego State game where there were nine sacks. It would have been 19 sacks unless they had Kyler Murray or Chevin Cordero playing quarterback. So he is a guy that will give every defensive coordinator a nightmare, the ability to extend plays, the ability for chunk yardage, the ability for explosive plays. Um, and when you have a great quarterback like that, that will get better with his accuracy, will get better with his understanding of the scheme and his control of this offense. I think it's uh, going to be fun next year. Yeah, it's good stuff there, uh, Rich. I wanted to get a NFL take from you before we get you out of here. Uh, we got conference championship game, the conference championship games coming up this weekend. Uh, we'll, let's start with, uh, we'll start with the NFC with uh, old man Brady and, and old man Rogers going at it here. Uh, we haven't seen them play a ton, you know, over the course of their careers and obviously never in the postseason. Um, but we get it here with a chance at the Super Bowl. What are you, what are you looking forward to in the NFC title game? So, so I was blessed. I, I think and most of us were, you know, this pandemic, one of the silver lining was just to watch, you know, three games on a Saturday to watch, you know, six games on a weekend to, you know, really watch the NFL uh, and not worry about stand up paddling and golfing and some of these other recreations that I have. So, you know, I, I, what, what, where I'm pleased is I don't think in the history of the National Football League, you come into the championship games and you have four of the best quarterbacks the best quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of how they were playing um, at the end of the season, you take Brady's last six or seven games. And then you start thinking about, I thought Drew Brees might play longer than Tom Brady because of 43, 41, 44, 42, you know, but Brady, I don't know if it's that Florida sunshine, but the ability to still zip that ball and to throw such a great deep ball. When you look at last week, you know, Chris Good Godwin dropped one in the back of the end zone. That was, beautiful zone. Gronk had one, two on his fingertips on the deep ball throws, you know, and they're throwing deep seven to 10 times a football game. I still think in the command of this offense in, in the continuity of this offense, Brady is the greatest player coach accolades in the history of this football game. And if he can somehow get to the Super Bowl, win another Super Bowl, I think we're going to be talking about him with the greatest icons in any sport in, in history, uh, in the history of, of sports. So, but that being said, you're a quarterback, Jordan. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to think I probably know more than I do, but I do appreciate. I, I still think this season by Aaron Rodgers may be the greatest season in NFL history in terms of touchdown interception ratio, the control of the offense, the ability to make all the throws, the command of an offense. This guy, if he was at Kansas City, I mean, it'd be unstoppable. He does have talent but he doesn't have the talent that Kansas City has. But this is just watching Aaron Rodgers on a weekly basis when people thought Jordan Love was going to replace him this year, that he was washed up. It goes to show you that Matt LaFleur is a great coordinator and how well they work together. But it's just poetry in motion. It's just beautiful to watch. Yeah, the, the, the Fleur partnership is has proved more successful than I think anybody's wildest imaginations when they brought him in. All right, AFC, we got uh, hopefully 
Pat Mahomes, all indications are that he's progressing nicely as the week goes on coming back from, from the protocol. And, and Josh Allen, who's been outstanding for, for Buffalo and, and two teams that can also put up some points. Well, well, you know, I'm throwing superlatives around, but if anyone wants to question, you know, the future of uh, Patrick Mahomes, he's obviously the most talented player maybe to ever play in the league at this age and this stage of his career. And then you go, wow, Josh Allen. And, you know, again, when I watched Josh Allen against the University of Hawaii, I think it was three years ago, and it was up in Wyoming, he, there was three throws that I think he made that I looked at and I go like, the fact that he's about 50%, the fact that he's only around 200 yards, it doesn't matter. He's making throws that very few people that walk on this planet can make. And then when you look at his size and you look at his running ability, you look at his strength. But the most surprising thing, Jordan, is his maturation in terms of recognizing defenses, pre-snap reads, anticipation throws, the ability to make uh, plays and extend plays. We're, we, we probably have witnessed the most improvement of any quarterback in the history of this league from year one to three, if not from year two to three, that guy is amazing. And I can't wait for this matchup. All right. So there are a few things that I've come to know as signs of whether or not somebody has made it in life. And one of those (laughs) things I think is when you have access, when you have the ability to play a golf course, fresh after a PGA tournament was held there. So it is in tournament shape and to be able to experience it. uh, You, my friend, from what we understand at the time of of our recording, this are uh, later today scheduled to play at Wiley fresh off of the Sony open being held there. So it's going to be in tournament shape. Uh, I imagine that's going to be kind of fun. Yeah. And I played right before the tournament where all the scoreboards <laughs> were course. up and everything else. And the course was in great shape. And I'm, you know, it's with the president of Wiley, Gabe Lee. I was drinking Habiki with Stanford Carr <laughs> last night and we, your name came up and I don't want to drop names about, you know, the amount of influences that, you know, happened at, at Wiley, whether it's in the 19th hole or, you know, playing 18, but um, I'm very blessed, but it brings me back to a time when a guy named Tony Takitani <laughs> and Kanoa Leahy got me on McKenna and uh, what a special day that was. So I think I've been blessed and I'm hoping it is because I'm trying to pay this thing forward in terms of exposure and opportunity to the youth in Hawaii. But no, my tax bracket is not as the same as some of these guys we've just mentioned, but I'm blessed because um, I have friends like you. Uh, people want to help out somebody who is helping out others. And, uh, you know, I, I've been blessed. There's been a silver lining in this pandemic. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm blessed to be part of you guys' life and your show. Yeah, and the feeling is mutual, man. We really always appreciate you making yourself available to us. We love talking with you. We love chatting football with you. We can do it all day, every day. Uh, I know you can, too. Your energy for this stuff is, is amazing and, and unparalleled. So uh, have fun over there at Wiley. Even if you're in a lower tax bracket than some of your golfing partners, you're also lower on the scorecard, right? That's right, Rich. You go show them what's up. Hey, I'm going to let you guys know, you know, when I'm about to start breaking – into the 80s and i've been practicing like i'm preparing for my first year as a walk-on at the university of hawaii football so if if my game doesn't improve (laughs) there's something wrong with practice makes perfect (laughs) all right yeah that whole outliers book is just full of crap it's just full of crap uh all right well good luck well looking forward to seeing you next week and uh and good luck with the hula bowl my man all right thanks once again to rich always a pleasure with that let's get into our post game And it's our best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit WasteProHawaii.com for services information. All right, what is your best here for this edition of the pod, Jordan? Yeah, my best. Uh, I got to give a little shout out. I was uh, got a message from one of our old regular listeners slash callers on the radio show back when we were doing that. Uh, have, it's been a while now. Uh, kind of crazy the, the, that since we were uh, back in the old radio studio. Uh, but our guy Chuck from Kihei <laughs> let me know that Rudy, his frenemy, right? Like they're friends, but they were also sort of just combatants via the airwaves. Uh, he, he let me know Rudy retired. He retired from his job. So we got to give a shout out 
to our guy, Rudy. Congratulations. I have no idea what he's going to do with all his time. If the radio show was going, he'd probably call us three times an hour. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe he can submit topics for the podcast or something like that. So congrats, Rudy. Good for you, man. That is awesome to hear. Rudy and Chuck from Kihei, they really were like the two dominant personalities. Uh, and I kind of miss them, right? That's one of the things we miss about doing the radio show is the live aspect and being able to, to field calls. And maybe we can develop back into that. Maybe we'll be back on the radio uh, in the not too distant future. But uh, really happy to hear that. Rudy's one of the good ones. And their rivalry was very interesting. Like they would call into the show to talk trash to each other, even though they knew each other's numbers and, and where, where the other one lived, so they could just do the trash talking directly, but they preferred to do it in the public forum, and uh, hey, bless them for doing it because it made our show that much more fun. Uh, all right, my best is, I'm going to also take it to the island of Maui, Makua Rothman. Uh, he caught an estimated 100-foot wave at a tow-in session at JAWS. That immediately made national news. It could be a world record. He was out there with what he referred to as the hammers of this generation. Kai Lenny, Ian Walsh, Billy Kemper, who was actually the guy who, I guess, suggested uh, that the group hit up the huge swell. Um, and Makua Rothman, who is just as fearless as they come. I mean, that whole subculture of humanity. Those are, those are guys who are cut from a different cloth to be able to go out in those kinds of conditions and risk their lives. And with that said, that was my favorite party. In an interview with Rob DeMello, uh, and basically, Makua Rothman said the best part of the session was that everyone was able to get home safely and be with their families. And it's like, wow, uh, it, it's so interesting to talk about a competitive endeavor in those terms, right? No one's like, oh, yeah, I went and played pickup basketball or I went and uh, golfed uh, over at Wiley like Rich Miano. And the best part was I made it home safely. Like these guys are going out there knowing that they are putting themselves on the line. They are risking their lives. And so it is that 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 combination, right, between the thrill and the risk and the accomplishment. And so uh, I, I have always admired the big wave riders for their courage, their bravery, uh, and just their, their general take on life. Yeah, th those guys are crazy. They're awesome. They're a different breed of, of humanity. Uh, the, the only thing that I, uh, me being somewhat of a, of a, a Debbie Downer, when those swells, right, the forecast came out for those swells last weekend, and it was like, man, it's going to be huge. There are going to be some unbelievable rides, and the, the videos are going to be great. But the only bummer is all the sanctioned surf contests yeah. were put on hold, right? The state basically said that the, the, they couldn't proceed. And, like, this would have been the perfect, perfect weekend. You could have had Piahi going off. Like, the Eddie could have been going off at Waimea <laughs> on Oahu. Like, it was... It was the perfect storm, the perfect swell. Like the, the, the waves are huge. Imagine if there was like a contest going on, right, yeah. with all of that. And, uh, and so it's, it's sort of pure in a sense, right? There's, there's no money at stake. There's, no, there's not necessarily – I mean, I, I get it. Some of these guys could win awards and things like that. But there was, no, there was no commercial nature to it. It was sort of the pure, like they're out there for the fun of it and these guys are doing it. But, but it would have been kind of cool if like the Piahi Challenge or, or the Eddie Aikau you right. could, have, could have ran, right? It was just like, dang I mean, it's still good for their sponsorships, right, and for all sure, of that. For but, sure, for like, sure. These guys right. can make a little bit of money off of it, no doubt. But Like, this had yeah, the potential of being that year that, that we kind of always, like, talk about in fantasy where, where you would say, uh, you know, maybe Makua Rothman would take part in a heat at Peahi and then get on a helicopter. They'll fly him over to Waimea, and he can jump in the water for a heat at the Eddy. Like, right? I'm, I'm thinking, like, one day that will happen, and this was actually one of those yeah, times. It probably could have happened outside. That was a possibility. That would have <laughs> yeah. been amazing. All right, let's go over to the bad stuff. What's your worst? Yeah, my worst, um, it, it's kind of a different spin on this too, but uh, Larry Scott, the reports are that he is going to be out as the commissioner of the Pac-12 conference. He's been there for a number of years now. And, and the worst isn't necessarily that he's gone, especially if you ask like our resident <laughs> Pac-12 alums, uh, including my father. And yeah, it might be their best. Rob, yeah. And our father and Rob Coleus, both Oregon alums, our buddy Rob Coleus of the Maui newspaper. Um, he, they, they were stoked, but the, the fact that it took this long, is just, it's kind of embarrassing for the Pac-12 conference. They have become the laughingstock of major college sports and in large part because of Larry Scott, the dude made like roughly $40 million by the time he's done as commissioner of that conference by far, by far the highest paid, highest compensated commissioner in, in all of, you know, obviously power five conferences, but all of big time college sports. He was getting like housing. They were flying him around on a private jet to go from campus to campus and game to game. Like private jet, the dude had a private jet. They gave him like a multi-million dollar loan that I think is probably just going to be forgiven. He's run them into some big time financial difficulties as a conference and 
the Pac-12 network thing has not worked out. Like, it's just been a bungle after bungle. And the dude has just gotten rich throughout it all. It's like he's either, like, somebody's, you know, hero after all of this, but he's also just going to be run out of, like, the West Coast by the time this is all said and done. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the part of it that makes it eligible for the worst category. But you're right. I think in most cases, a lot of people who are involved with the Pac-12 saw that the other day as good news, right? The mismanagement of the Pac-12 network, as you say, uh, the millions upon millions of dollars put into the rent of their central offices in San Francisco. I mean, those are expenses that aren't even like necessary. Uh, and they, so they, they lived the fine life, right? And I think they are now paying the consequences quite literally. So um, yeah, I don't think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be coming out uh, and, uh, you know, banging on the doors, demanding that uh, Mr. Scott stay uh, employed as the commissioner. All right. My worst is if there's any proof that sports opinion givers say things specifically designed to elicit a response from the public, regardless of whether or not they are stupid or make any sense. I give you exhibit 7001. This one from Colin Coward, the FS1 take machine said that while Patrick Mahomes goes through the concussion protocol, the NFL should postpone the game until he's good to go. At the time of this recording, we are not sure if Patrick Mahomes will be cleared to play in the AFC championship game. Uh, but Colin Coward says, we want Mahomes against Allen. Josh Allen of the Bills, of course, says that's reasonable. If I'm the NFL, I find the day Mahomes can play, that's when we play. If this is how Colin truly feels, then it clearly is a take that adversely impacts his credibility. More likely, though, it is not how he feels, and that should also adversely impact his credibility. Uh, hey, look, we're small bananas, Jordan, compared to guys like Howard and Stephen A., but uh, I can honestly say with confidence that uh, we don't manufacture takes for the sake of controversy, and, and maybe that's why we're not as popular as those guys. Maybe we're wrong for doing it that way, but I'd prefer that over being disingenuous any day of the week. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't play the game like those guys do, right? And and maybe maybe they've convinced themselves that they believe a lot of this stuff. But I just I I, I refuse to to think that's the case. I refuse to think like they can, there's no way, right, that they actually think some of this stuff. Like yeah. maybe Skip Bayless. Like you hear some <laughs> of the stories of guys who have like worked with Skip, right? That have that have encountered Skip like in the bullpen preparing for a show. Like maybe him. But Cowherd, like, he went from just kind of making you think because he'd approach things sort of outside the box to just making you shake your head. Like, come on, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I yeah. couldn't do that. So, yeah, if we're not hot takey enough, you know, I think by now, by episode, what are we, 54? 54. I think, I think folks have figured it out. Yeah, that's right. The NFL should halt its operations to allow for certain players to get healthy. Like, that was the take. That is that yep. is one of a kind right there. Postpone the NBA season. Clay Thompson's <laughs> hurt, you know? Kevin Durant's out. Let's put things on pause. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Big thanks once again to Rich Miano. He's our guy. Great talking with him. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at TalkSports808 if you have any questions or comments. Till next time, Jordan, have a good one, brother. See you, man. <laughs>